If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And welcome to another episode of Level Up, the esports and gaming show with me, Nathan Bliss, esports and game writer for Reach PLC. And I'm again joined this week by Marcus Banks after a week hiatus. Welcome back, Marcus. How are you doing? A lot better this week, so Good. back to business as usual. Nice one, mate. And uh, are you looking forward to uh, this week weekend league, obviously with the ultimate team of the season so far? Uh, if you listen to this on Wednesday, you'll already have played the weekend league, so you already know how you know hard it was. But for us, it's Friday, so we're just kind of getting ready for it. Are you looking forward to it or not? I wouldn't say I'm looking forward to it, but it's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be interesting to say the least. It's yeah. probably going to be the most probably the most difficult weekend league of the year, given it's probably well, it's almost definitely the best rewards of the year. So yeah. there's going to be so many more people going for them, trying to reach the highest ranks possible to get the best rewards. So it could be could be interesting to say the least. But yeah, I'm looking forward to playing. Maybe not so looking forward to playing. I'm definitely looking forward to. <laughs> The rewards part of it, definitely. Yeah, well, I've already committed. I've just literally redeemed my entrance to the 2,000-foot transport, so I'm fully committed now. Um, it's the only chance of me getting 99 Messi or anyone 99 or 98 or probably 97, actually, in the whole in the whole uh, life cycle of FIFA. So I'll be happy with 14 to 17. I think that's my target. It's going to be difficult, but, you know, I'll try my best. Let's hope so. And uh, we can discuss our rewards uh, on next week's show. But today's episode uh, is a really, really good one. Uh, we've been looking forward to this for, for quite a while. Today, we're joined by Paul Challoner, also known as Red Eye, um, the voice of esports. He's been around the esports for a long time. He knows everything about it. He just wrote a book, This Is Esports and How to Spell It, that is available now. And we're going to discuss his book, as well as his career, FIFA, F1, uh, and a host of other things. It was really enjoyable talking to him. Did you enjoy it, Marcus? It was great to get insight from someone who's been like lived and breathed these sports yeah. from almost the, the very beginning. So it's he can he certainly offers an, an insight that not many people in the world can offer. So yeah, it's definitely casual or hardcore esports fan. It's definitely definitely be worth a listen. With no further ado, here's the episode with Paul Challenger, Red Eye. You're not going to regret listening to this one. Here he is. Me and Marcus are joined by Paul Challoner, also known as Red Eye. Uh, how are you doing, Paul? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Good, very good, thank you, very good. So, first things first, I know you've got a book out, so we'll talk about that amongst loads of other things. But let's get on to the most important point that I want to bring up, the very serious issue. Let's sort out a, a, how esports is spelled, shall we? Uh, <laughs> That's the subplot to the book. Like yeah. you can't give away the you know the the the, the plot for the for the book itself. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, and and those that read the book will will know that once they've read it, that I actually don't care that much 
how we spell it. I mean, I, you know, horses for courses and all that stuff. I don't know how I became the poster child for this, but I, what I have, <laughs> or the poster grandfather, maybe. I don't know. Um, but anyway, it's English grammar, for crying out loud, right? It, we don't use camel case in, in collective nouns, and esports is a collective noun. So use it as you would use any other word. Capitalise it at the start of a sentence. Don't capitalise it during the middle of a sentence. And for crying out loud, don't put any hyphens in it, and don't capitalise <laughs> the S. <laughs> I'm, I'm losing it already, Nathan. Help. No, it's fine. I mean, that sounds right. simple to me. But uh, I mean... It's easy, right? Yeah. I mean, the most important thing, I think, it might sound trivial to some people listening, but to me, uh, the, how something is spelled, the consistency of something that's spelling, it's quite important for the brand kind of authenticity and integrity of it, if it's consistent uh, amongst everything. Wants to be taken seriously, it should be spelled yeah. the same way. And yeah, and, and you're right, Marcus. I think that's that's what it's about, right? For me, is about, uh, and I don't want to use this as a kind of gatekeeping argument, but it, but it allows us in a way to kind of test whether someone is um, genuine when they come into it. You know, if they're brand new into esports, a brand or whatever it might be, and they start throwing around this, you know, incorrect capitalization of it thinking that they're being cool and hip and trendy, but actually we can use it as a marker to test whether they're serious about our industry. I think that's okay. And, and you know, some of the brands that we've challenged in the part, people like Red Bull, for instance, and Paris Saint-Germain, yeah. and we've challenged them and said, uh, guys, like, you've used the capital S. That's not really, you know, it's not a good thing. And they've changed. Yeah. But credit to them, they've actually gone, oh, sorry, guys, we, we genuinely, we, we love this space, but we, and we didn't realise that was offensive to some, we'll change it, it's no problem. <laughs> well, at least, at least the impact of, of that is kind of being felt across, and I, I think it is important. I mean, like, like I said, some people might think it's trivial, but I think, uh, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's, it's about the seriousness of people he's speaking to. Glad we got yeah, that settled. It's, it definitely goes back to what you're saying about being sick. Like, I was a writer at Deserto, and it was stressed to me there that it was, you know, like it was important <laughs> to, to spell it the right way because if you want to be taken seriously as a, a game and website, then you need to need to have that mark of professionalism really yeah i think i doubt i mean for a site like deserto as well which is very deeply embedded in esports and is very much part of the scene rather than coming into it yeah i think credibility is is big on that right so it makes sense that they want to they want to make sure it was spelled the right way and also because ap right the associated press came out a few years ago and agreed and said no no this, this is how it should be this is how it should be represented. And that doesn't matter when it comes to names internally or um, how someone wants to use branding, for instance. You know, if they want to call their, you know, their esports team with a capital L, well, that's up to them. That's a name. I'd, I'm not worried about that so much. But when we're using it in everyday writing, it, you know, just follow English grammar rules. Pretty simple. But well, at least everyone knows now the, the right way of doing it. So when, when I was going to introduce you, um, I looked at all the things you've been involved in within esports over the last yeah. you know decade or so. And uh, it was, I mean, you've got your, uh, you've, you've done a lot in the world of esports. So I'll just go through it. So you've been a host, presenter, commentator, ambassador, personality, book author, occasional streamer, virtual Grand Prix driver, and now you're an agency co-founder slash MD. Have I got everything in right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you go back two decades, you can add tournament organizer, uh, league operations manager, online administrator, Jolt League admin. What else was there in there? I mean, uh, you know, when you go back that far, the reason I have so many roles isn't because I particularly enjoyed all of those roles, um, although most were fine. It was because we, if we wanted anything done back in 1999, we had to do it ourselves. So when I sat there and went, oh, we should have a league for Unreal Tournament Capture the Flag. Oh, there isn't one. Oh, well, all right. Uh, 
Lads, do you fancy sorting out a CTF league? Uh, yeah, all right. What's that involve? I have no idea. Let's find out. Uh, let's create a website. Let's create, you know, I, I mean, esports in many ways has taught me things like PHP and MySQL. I never knew those mm. things before. I never needed to. And then I needed to, to, to be able to build something online. So I learned PHP and MySQL as I went along. We're early adopters of things like IRC, ICQ. And then obviously when social media came along, we were early adopters of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and, and so on. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think that's the kind of mentality that esports people have, right, in general. We're, mm. we're very quick with technology. We get involved early. We kind of grab it and see whether we can use it in our own world. And that leads to many, you know, doing many kind of different roles. And, and, and I think it's changed a little bit now, but there are still, I still see lots of people out there trying their hand at different things to try and achieve, you know, someone comes along and starts streaming Counter-Strike, right? And they can't make their mark, but they want to be a caster. What do they do? Uh, well, they put up 50 quid of their own money and they run a little tournament. So then they've got to do league ops and they've got to know how to do brackets and they've got to run a website and they've got to post it and do social media and learn all these different skills as they go along. All things they might never have learned before mm. right or never even got qualifications in so i think it still happens it's just that i happen to be a lot older and happen to have been involved in this for a couple of decades so i've ended up doing a lot of different roles but i think some people listening will be surprised to hear that because uh, maybe some people think that esports is is over the last few years and it, it's just come out of nowhere but that is absolutely not the case as uh, you know the couple of first couple of chapters in your book i mean starcraft yeah. in 1980 i think what you mentioned was like one of the first uh, kind of esports Space Invaders, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Space Invaders World Championships in 1980 was one of the first organised, probably the, you know, it, the first kind of seminal moment when people actually went, okay, we, we're going to compete in a semi-professional environment. You know, they, they hired hotel ballrooms and they set up the computers and they set up the TVs in those days. They were big wooden boxes with giant pieces of glass in the front of them. And they set up, you know, 20 of these in a row. And then in other places, they set up the cabinets themselves. You know, the Space Invaders cabinets um, had to be wheeled in on trucks and there would be, you know, 20 or 30 in a row. And so those were the first kind of organized competition. Not LAN, not not as we recognize esports today, it, but just in terms of competing against other people and sending high scores for a prize at the end of it and a chance to be called Space Invaders World Champion. There were other things before that, as the book will go into mm such as Space War and, uh, you know, some of the early competitions won things like a year's subscription to the Rolling Stone magazine. Um, you know, it's pretty bizarre, really. For me, yes, that the Space Invaders World Championship was kind of at the start of like, oh, we can, we can compete, in inverted commas, in this. And so we've been trying to do that ever since and then utilising technology to help us achieve that. You know, when the internet really came on strong in the mid-90s and suddenly we could upload stuff and download stuff and then... Oh, hold on. We can play against other humans. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we should do that. So, you know, Quake and um, the, the very part of early of Qu uh, Quake World um, allowed me to play on a 33K modem, uploading at 2.4K a second. That's not meg or gig. That's K a second. <laughs> allowed me to play against nine other human beings in a Quake level. And that was 1995. So, yeah, I think from, from that moment on, you, you much like... Other sports have started, you know, back in medieval times, someone started kicking a pig's bladder around because it was inflated, right? And they were like, look, this thing floats and stuff and I can kick it. It doesn't really hurt me. Amazing. I'm going to kick it to my mate across the other side of town in the village and then he's going to kick it back. And then from that, suddenly there were, it was 5v5s in the field with a couple of goal, you know, jumpers on the floor. Mm. Oh, aim at those posts. That's the goal now. You go and then bring it forward to the 80, late 1800s and we're playing something called association football which has got rules and markers on the floor. Well, that's that's basically the analogy I use with the, the mid-90s 
with esports because we didn't have anything. Yeah, yeah. We, we just started playing against other humans. I mean, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And if you look at yeah. the the growth over the last, uh, I mean, 20, 30 years, it's been absolutely phenomenal, hasn't it? The, the way it's grown, it's grown quicker than any major sport, really, you could argue. I would I would agree. There's nothing else out there that has ever grown this quickly. Um, I think the only real comparison I could give you is probably Formula One from mm. maybe the 60s to the 80s, that 20-year period when you look at, you know, these cigar-shaped kind of Formula One cars that were painted in their national colours with no sponsors on, and then mm. 20 years later, they're these highly sophisticated carbon monocoque, cigarette-covered, emblazoned <laughs> speedsters, you know, with wings and slick tyres and God knows what. That's probably the only sport I can think yeah. of that's made that kind of leaps and bounds technologically and professionally in such a short period of time. And even then, you know, motor racing had been established for 60 years. So, yeah, there's nothing else quite like it out there. So you, when you first started commentating on, was it online radio, to about 50 yeah. people? I, I can tell you it was like 23 people, I think, I had on the first cast wow. I did on, on Shellcast Radio, yeah, 2002. And the biggest event you've commentated slash host, how many people were watching that? Probably would have been one of the internationals. I've done four of the internationals, yeah. I've hosted four TIs now, and I think, you know, we're probably talking 60, 70, 80 million people worldwide. Not a bad growth, that. No. <laughs> Pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird otherwise. But in your book, you do mention where you had that growth period, didn't you, in mm. 2008, and then it kind of went down a bit. But then do you think esports before that was just looking for you, – you mentioned in the book, don't you, about how Twitch was just the absolute major thing that made yeah. esports just become mainstream for everyone because it was actually costing some people to be involved in it more than they're actually earning from it. Yeah, no, I you know I ran a, a small broadcasting agency called Quad V, which we started in 2007 after I left Radio ITG, and um, yeah, we would regularly have bandwidth bills that we we could barely pay for, and, and in some cases, you know, our bandwidth bill exceeded the amount of money we'd earned from the event that we'd been to, um, and I think if you ask anyone that ran any of those kind of radio and and video stations back in the day, they'll tell you a similar story. TSN probably have horrific stories about having to pay for bandwidth. Radio ITG, likewise, Marcus, DJ Week Graham, can reel off, I'm sure, tons of stories about when he got a bill through and thought, how the hell am I going to pay this bill? The downside to it was that more, the more successful you became, the higher your bills. So you know, the more people that tuned in, the more expensive it got for you, which was like, uh, can you stop tuning in, please? I can't afford any more bandwidth. Um, and Twitch solved all of that for us mm. in, in one fell swoop. So yes, it was, a, it was a game changer in many ways. And I don't think it's, it's um, unrelated that we've had the best part of nine years of steady growth now um, in esports, whereas before that, it was very much up one year, down another and up another, and then down again. Do you think during this period, obviously it's an unprecedented time for everyone, coronavirus, people spending more and more time indoors. We chatted with Arava last week, uh, F1 content creator. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and he was saying um, that he feels that the F1 esports has grown as much in these couple of months as it would have done over a couple of years because of people spending more time indoors and looking for other ways to interact with sports with no sports being on TV, of course. Yeah, I, and, I, and again, I would agree with Arav and, and say that he's right, particularly F1 has seen a massive growth. But I think sim racing as a whole has seen a big growth. I think iRacing are seeing record numbers of people signing up and, and yeah. racing on iRacing. 
co-masters have undoubtedly seen more sales of F1 2019 and, and hopefully with F1 2020 just around the corner we'll do the same thing but other areas have um, benefited as well I think you know NASCAR have shown great strengths they had record numbers watching on TV probably the biggest TV audience anything has gone out in the States with by the way 1.3 million people tuning in concurrently um, to watch virtual NASCAR racing which <laughs> you know it, it's it's insane when I think about it but at the same time I also think some of it is kind of expected we're talking about Sports that currently don't exist in the real world, right? They they can't run the same way as they did. They can't show F1. We can't show NASCAR. We can't play football. So in many ways, it makes sense that a lot of those drivers and, and professional sports stars have kind of come over to the virtual world to provide a bit of lighthearted entertainment as well as competition and keep fans happy and then offer them a different kind of angle on that so we've i think we've enthused a lot more mainstream fans that doesn't mean to say they're suddenly going to become counter-strike fans or valorant fans or league of legends or dota fans or starcraft fans that they're very much more still sports fans that have kind of been starved of any sports action and therefore have come in and, and found something alternative that's roughly related to what they do and i think it's much easier with motorsports right because it's it's a very similar mecha- you know i've got a wheel and pedals and and a setup here that still requires the same mechanical skills from me as it would do if I was racing a real car on a track. The physical elements are different, but but everything else is very similar. And the skills, therefore, are much more translatable and they're more visceral in the way that a fan can see them. So I don't think it's a big stretch for sports fans to kind of enjoy a virtual version of their sports. It's much harder than to then convert them into being what I would call traditional hardcore esports fans. But I think we would have certainly have attracted some. Yeah, I mean, you, we have seen a lot of people get involved in it. It's been fantastic for me, as obviously in, as an esports journalist, to see the kind of peak of interest that has gone on. But we've still seen, like, I saw a high-profile journalist, I'm not going to mention him, yesterday on Twitter, uh, commenting on the uh, retirement of Uzi and saying, yeah. and he said star in, like, stars, and then uh, in the, and then he said in the sport with you know, stars on it, as in, saying that it's not a sport and that he's not a star. Yeah, exactly. And I just think, well, that's already, it's like, you know, when someone tells you that if you've got a headache from being uh, dehydrated, it's already too late to get a glass of water and drink it, if you know what I mean. It's yeah. like they're already behind now. If they're not on board with esports, they're already kind of behind now, aren't they? If they're not on board yeah, at the moment. Yeah, true. But do you know what the harsh reality is? These people will get old and die. That's I mean, the harsh reality of it. Yeah. Like, uh, I, and I'm being flippant for a reason because it's going to take a generational change before we get to a point where this is just treated as a normal pursuit and respected as such. There was a terrible piece on the BBC yesterday. Yeah, you know, we we had esports on the front page of the BBC, which was, you know, in my mind, is great, right? More exposure, fantastic. Um, except that they led with esports hero in inverted commas, hero, yeah. as in like maybe he's not really a hero, questionable, retires through ill health. So that was the headline. Brilliant. So in other words, what you're saying is it wouldn't have made the front page if he hadn't retired from ill health. It's not because he's a world-leading League of Legends player that you've announced that he's retiring. It's because he retired from ill health. Let me have a look at the piece. Oh, look, you've used lots of stuff about gamers being ill and China doesn't like gamers and the World Health Organization have said there is gamer addiction everywhere and you've used all of these tropes that you've trotted out time and time again and actually it's not a piece about Uzi retiring this legendary player who played at the very top who set record after record after record and will be retiring as one of the most incredible esports players of his generation nothing about that 
Nothing about that at all. Just about bad China and bad people and bad gamers and the who say gamers are addictive and everything that's bad about health and blah, 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 blah. The usual tropes that come out with these people that don't actually spend a little bit of time educating themselves and learning about the industry, right? Yeah. And, and so that, that annoys the crap out of me. And the analogy I'll give you is this. Imagine the BBC writing a story about a boxer retiring, right? On their sports pages. Their sports pages, by the way, are very good. Like, all their sports stuff is fantastic. I love it. Imagine they do that for a boxer that's about to retire, right? But the headline says, boxer retires through ill health, or boxing hero retires through ill health. You'd be like, oh, I wonder what's happened to him. Oh, so you go into it, and and then it works out. He's had too many punches to the head. We know boxing is a violent, damaging sport, right? It's damaged an awful lot of people over the years. We know this. But the BBC then, right, imagine they then said, 14,000 people suffered from concussion last year. Boxing is a dangerous sport. But actually, the story was supposed to be about the boxer retiring. Mm. Now imagine they did that for every single boxing story they ever wrote on the website. And that's what we've got from them for esports. And yet when the E-Premier League was on, when we had no football, they covered the E-Premier League with a live blog. I mean, I did. It was one of the biggest events when there was no football on. Raheem Sterling, Trent Alexander-Arnold all playing in in this tournament to raise money. Uh, They covered it heavily. So, And then obviously now when sports And reasonably legitimately. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I completely agree. So all I'm asking for is some consistency and and a... You know, for the BBC to be fair, they're they're a taxpayers' company, right? We pay for them. We pay this uh, license fee for them to be a national broadcaster that presents fair and balanced opinion pieces, as well as provide a wide range of services to a wide range of people that pay that fee. Why can't you do that for esports fans when you can do it for boxing fans and football fans and motor racing fans? Esports may not be a traditional sport as people, you know, look at sport, but it is. But it's a perfectly 100%. valid industry for them to comment on, right? Yeah, if you... uh, that, that's my point. I mean, if they don't understand it, hire some people that understand it, train people, educate them. You know, there's plenty out there now. There's no excuses now for for being naive to esports anymore. Like we've been around enough yeah. and been around long enough for it to be at least something that if you're a, if you you know if you're a professional journalist, do your job. You know. Like your part of your job is to research and and educate yourself and learn what you're talking about if you're going to do a piece on it, uh, and that's all I'm asking for. Just treat us the same as you would anything else that you don't know anything about. I mean, if you look at the definition of sport, esport fits absolutely into that category. There's one thing missing. There is only one thing missing in the in the Oxford Dictionary definition of esports, and that's the physicality. Yeah. That's it. But you can use the same argument for chess and the same yeah. argument to a degree for snooker and darts. There's plenty of other examples of sports which aren't particularly physical. Motor racing. I mean, I'm I'm literally sat still the entire time. Yeah. I mean, I'm turning my, my wheel with my hands and my arms and I'm pressing some pedals with my feet. Is that exercise? Nope. Is it physical? Nope. Is it physically challenging to drive a car? Yeah, absolutely. Is it physically challenging to play in a League of Legends team? Yeah. It takes it takes stamina. There are different types of stamina, but it takes stamina to maintain that level of concentration, yeah. that level of professionalism to compete at the highest level for you know, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 minutes, whatever that game might take. Mm. That takes it out of you. Well, is that one of the, not the main reason, obviously, but is that one of the reasons why you wrote the book is to educate people and to, for people who might not know or be interested in esports, they might look at it and think, actually, I might have a look at that and see what all the fuss is about and then kind of change their minds, win them over a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when when um, my co-writer, Ben Sillis, and, and my book agent, Nick, we all sat down and we discussed, you know, we want to write this book. I've wanted to write this book for a long time, probably like five plus years now. I've wanted to write some kind of book on esports and I always dreamed of having it published by, you know, an amazing 
company like Bloomsbury, for instance. So when we sat down to discuss what the rest of the book would look like, we'd been mapped out some ideas of chapters and what we wanted to do in it. But we were like, what, what are the objectives of this book? And we want it to appeal to esports fans. Absolutely. I want to be honest to esports fans. I want to show them a little bit of a behind the curtain kind of feel, but do it through my eyes. So in other words, some of it is my own experiences and some of it is me learning as I go through the book, you know, learning about the history a bit more, learning about the arcade stuff a bit more, which I, I knew nothing about before we started writing the book. And to kind of let people make up their own minds about it, right? So I don't I don't necessarily push an agenda in the book. I'm pro esports. It's obvious I'm pro esports, but I don't push an agenda in the book as such. I'm I'm very much about let's present everything. Let's present it as honestly and factually as we can and, and that we can find out and get other people's opinions and bring other people in. And and we did, you know, we interviewed more than 30 different people for the book to try and get those opinions and flavors in there. And then let the reader end the book and make their own decisions. You know, if they're an esports fan, did they enjoy it because they got some behind the scenes stuff out of it? Yep, great, awesome, done, done the job. Did they enjoy it because they were able to look at it through my eyes? Great, job done. And then finally, another part of it was, yeah, if you're completely new and you're interested in it, have you learned something? Yes, great, okay, job done. And finally, yes, that person that is a skeptic in many ways, you know, someone that is almost blatantly anti-esports. So for example, and, and this is partly why I love this yesterday, I'm looking it up because I want to get it right in terms of the way that this this person um, expressed their feelings. We've got a review on Amazon. I was touched by it, really truly touched by it. It almost broke me. It, it made it made me well up because it finally justified why Ben and I wrote the book for people that were skeptics. And this chap said, he's left a review on Amazon. He says, I thoroughly enjoyed this book despite not having much prior knowledge of esports. Fantastic. Job done, right? He then says, I was initially dismissive of esports and mm. its appeal. But having noticed more mainstream coverage, decided to learn more about it. This book combines a comprehensive history of the industry alongside some great personal stories and has changed my opinions towards esports and everybody involved. Hallelujah! <laughs> a winner! Yeah. I mean, no, if no one else is, is changed by this book, job done. That, that for me was fabulous to see that yesterday when that went up because it's that's what this is all about it's you know yeah okay it's a bit retail and you have to do like person by person maybe but how many people is that person now going to go and talk to about esports and enthuse them about it i love the the last the very last page in terms of the main chapter the very last page was a real call to action and i thought if i was if i was someone who didn't know anything about esports or i was dismissive about it that last page would really make me sit down and think actually you know this is serious thing. This is something that's massive. So I really like that call to action at the end. I thought that was really good. Thanks. It was funny, actually, because we finished the last chapter and then we proofread it. And then Ben, myself, uh, Matt at Bloomsbury, we all, we all sort of went, yeah, it, it doesn't really feel like an end. Like we need a proper ending. It just stops and it just feels a bit odd. Maybe maybe we can add like a, an epilogue to it. And I was like, yeah, that would work. And that's that's why we wrote it in the end because it just it didn't feel like we'd ended the book properly and and given people something more to think about. So yeah, I'm I'm pleased that you enjoyed it though. Yeah, definitely. I think you, you including as well all the abbreviations and all the uh, you know the stuff that people might not understand at the start, like as an index, that's really good as well because it makes people feel like uh, they can just read that and think, oh, I've seen that before, but I didn't yeah. know what it meant, and now they know. And then as they're reading the book, they can flip back to the front and say, oh yeah, okay, I know. What he's talking about now so it's it's friendly for people who have no knowledge of esports but also for someone like me who knows esports moderately well i I did some of the stuff was in there that i had no idea about so i learned a lot from it so that's i mean it appeals to everyone really 
well, it's credit to Bloomsbury um, and Ben, um, my co-writer, because they were the they were the ones that pushed for those things. And I I wasn't anti like glossary or anything, but in my mind, I was a bit like, ah, I don't want to clog the book too much with new stuff. You know, I want people to kind of enjoy it and and find it for themselves. But again, when Matt from Bloomsbury and Ben sort of said to me, like, I think we need to include this because it it will help enormously for people with no knowledge whatsoever. We use so many phrases and acronyms in esports that I think it's, you know, we really should add some of these in. And then I was kind of like, yeah, okay, maybe we put it at the back. We get the proof through and it's at the front. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't want it to be overly focused on the newbie, as it were. But yeah, again, as I said, I think it was a great decision to do that in the end, but I can't take credit for it. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't me that decided to do that or, or originally came up with the idea, but um, I think it does, it does make the book much more friendly. One of the major topics that I wanted to touch on that I found really interesting and it made me think a little bit differently about it and I don't know why I haven't thought about it before, but the prize money was a really interesting chapter. When we talk about prize pools for tournaments, we talk about the Fortnite World Cup, for example, making millionaires. People might think that esports, if you're a good esports player, you're you're going to be a millionaire. What you don't understand is that you've got these mid-level esports players who are grinding every down Twitch, trying to build subscribers because that's their main income. Because they might finish runner-up at a, you know, uh, at an event that's not very high profile and earn maybe 500 quid from it, which might not be enough for even the travel to get there and back. So that was really interesting for me to look at the prize money and for people that think that esports is just gonna an absolute money making machine and that you go into it and it's just all easy and esports players don't work hard that's an absolute nonsense because you do have these esports players who don't earn a lot and they have to use twitch every single day to stream every day to earn their to earn their money but it's a valid point yeah. at the same time i think the fortnite world cup especially is another thing that has brought so many eyes to esports as well and if you look at the, like Booger in particular, the, the winner of it, you could say that for other people it might not have been, but for him, he has seen exponential growth on Twitch as a result of not only winning it, but then he, he's on Jimmy Fallon. He, you see him all over all over the news. So I think I get what you're saying, but at the same time, in a different way, it, is, it also has a positive effect on maybe bringing more casual eyes to, to the sport and that there is other tournaments, there is other games with less prize pools, the competitive factor and competitive edge is still there. Yeah, I think that's right. Marcus brings up a, a, a valid point in the in the sense of prize money is really the PR angle for us, right? That we are legitimate. And so what's happened, unfortunately, in some ways, and not completely unfortunately, but in many ways, the reason that we've broken into the mainstream is because we've been able to use some of those numbers, um, whether it be you know a $100,000 winner-take-all tournament to a kid winning $3 million by playing a video game, I remember that Forbes, when they first ran some of their early esports coverage, they're very regularly running stuff now. But when they first ran it, one of their first pieces was 15-year-old Pakistani wins million-dollar gaming tournament. And they were talking about Sumail, who won at TI5. And so for them, that was insane. You know, that was like, wow, this kid from the suburbs of Pakistan has somehow become like a world champion and won more than a million dollars and paid for his mum and dad's house and all his friends and everything. Like, that's an insane story. And what it did for us, of course, was it made mainstream press set up and take notice, which then meant that they wrote the stories, which then meant that more people were exposed to our industry in one way or another. So I don't have any issues with it as such, but I think Nathan brings up a good point as well, is that 
we're getting to that point now, the dangerous point, which I think my parents were at when I was growing up, when I was like, I'm going to be a professional footballer. And they were like, great, they earn loads of money without actually realizing that, you know, I played non-league football and the most I ever earned was 30 quid for playing. It was never going to be a career for me. I wasn't good enough. But that was my dream as a kid. And my parents were okay with that because they thought all footballers earned a lot of money back in the day. And now, of course, we're much more educated now around football. We understand that, yes, the Premier League players earn a lot of money and maybe in the championship and maybe even in League One or Two. But outside of that, many people are still taking a full-time job and playing football at the weekends. Esports is no no different, right? If, if, if it is, it's worse in some ways because the average amount of prize money being earned by the players that earned prize money last year is very small. Like it's it's a few thousand dollars on average. Um, it's just that the top end is is very heavy in terms of the amount of money that we've given away in, in the millions and the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and it depends where the esport is at as well, isn't it? In terms of yeah, its, yeah. its mainstream. So I was at the Premier League uh, last year, the first edition of yeah, it. No prize money. No salary, prize money whatsoever. I, I spoke to a couple of the esports players and they were saying, I'm actually at a loss here, being yeah. here. And it's all yeah. because I want to try and get my name out there. I want to try and make a name for myself, yeah. which is fair enough. But is that because is that because FIFA esports isn't at that level yet where you can justify that prize I mean, money? I, I think that one's slightly different. I think that... There are, there are games which kind of build from a community base and grow over time. And then maybe the publisher then goes, ah, oh, they've kind of turned our game into an eSport. Maybe we should get involved in that and invest money, a bit like Ubisoft did with Rainbow Six. And that's cool. That's great. But that's built by the community upwards, right? So it's based on whether it becomes popular or not. FIFA is very, very popular worldwide. Yeah. And EA make somewhere in the region of $1.5 billion from in-game sales alone. So it's a massive industry. Then you attach massive brands to it, like the Premier League. Are you telling me seriously the Premier League can't afford to put a little bit of prize money in this? That they can't afford to pay these players? And that the players are having to try and rely on paying their rent with exposure? Give me a break. <laughs> like, that's outrageous. Like, don't treat them like that. I want you to treat them like professionals. These people are the very best players in the world. Treat them like that. You wouldn't dare have Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane playing football for free, would you? So don't expect these FIFA players to do the same thing. And it was the same at the World Cup, wasn't it? I mean, you, yes. you did have the big prize pool. Slightly di- yeah, slightly but, different because of the prize pool and, yeah. and also because they get to go to the Ballon d'Or, right? So yeah. that, that's bloody <laughs> awesome. So, you know, that, FIFA have thought about it there and that's much more of a, it was more of a FIFA event than it was an EA event yeah. in the past. Um, and that's not to slightly, I think EA have done some very good things and, and some not very good things around FIFA. But generally speaking, they have the, their heart in the right place and I think they want to grow it as an eSport. Yeah. But FIFA originally, when they did the FIFA Interactive World Cup before it became this eWorld Cup thing, have always given prize money all the way back to 2005 and have always had this this incredible money can't buy kind of gift, which is that you get to pick up your award at the Ballon d'Or by the previous year's winner. So that's yeah. either Lionel Messi or Ronaldo in the last eight years. That's that's amazing. Like yeah. I think that's fantastic. And when you put it into context of everything else that goes on around FIFA esports, it's probably okay, right? It's probably okay to have one prize that's like that, maybe not that much prize money, but a decent prize. It's not okay that many of these players are relying on prize money as a way of surviving. Never mind the Texas of this world, which are earning hundreds of thousands of dollars in both salary and uh, promotion and sponsorship and then prize money on top. And I don't begrudge him any of that. He's fantastic and he deserves all of it. But he's the exception rather than the norm in FIFA. And so a lot of the middle guys, you know, they, they literally just cannot carry on playing the game the way they do and practicing the game the way they do without the prize money being there. So when you put up something like the Premier League, of course they're going to want to play in it and represent their favorite team. Who wouldn't? 
but at the same time, don't take advantage of them because of that. On FIFA, I think there's an additional layer to it as well, where we've seen this year within FIFA 20, a lot of esports players moan about the, the game itself yeah. and how it's not, yeah, not ready. And I, I mean, I spoke to you last year, deny about FIFA and where it's going to yeah. go. And we discussed, you came up with the idea, brilliant idea of maybe they should have two games. They should have FIFA and then FIFA esports. Yeah, because... I mean, uh, two games within one game. So yeah. two, effectively, a mod within the game itself. So, you know, you can choose to play FIFA esports inside the game, which is a box that you, you know, you slide along and you go, I want to play FIFA esports and then the game is balanced in a completely different way it's based on the professional feedback you know a lot of stuff is not automated anymore it's manual mm. and it's much more challenging much more difficult and you can play the game that way and then there's there's the other part which is the more casual like i want to play with my mates and i don't care about all this other stuff and i just want it to be automated and i want to have fun and then there's career mode and i think there is absolutely room for that inside the game if yeah. EA wanted to code it but solve so many of these problems yeah I spoke with Arav uh, last week and we discussed it and it's 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 different with sport isn't it with traditional yeah. sports esports as you like not with like Dota 2 or League of Legends for example but with football it's an unpredictable sport already so yeah with Formula One, for example, it's slightly different because if you practice, if you go around Australia again and again and again, you're going to learn the braking points. You're going to learn uh, how hard to put the throttle on certain corners, etc. You know you're going to get a predictable response from that. But with FIFA, what what the players are talking about this year is unpredictable. So they can practice and practice and practice but their inputs that they would normally do have this, have different impacts on the game at different stages, which is, I mean, can can you have a serious eSport that's unpredictable? The short answer is no, because I think one of the keys to a successful eSports, as well as having an easy entry point, which FIFA definitely does, and having a high skill ceiling, which FIFA definitely does, you also need a large element of the rule set needs to be stable. And FIFA doesn't necessarily have that internally within the game mechanics. And you also want to remove as much luck from the game as you possibly can. Now, that's controversial because you could argue, for instance, in Counter-Strike, that the bullet trace when you try and hold recoil is a little bit random. And certainly in Valorant, for instance, after the first three bullets, it is actually random. I've seen professional players already complaining about Valorant and the way that the spray works in the game because... You know, they want to learn, right? They want to learn the spray pattern and they want to get yeah. good at it and practice it and then use it. They don't want to spend all that time practicing and learning it and then it's random after <laughs> a certain amount but because that just doesn't that that doesn't allow skill to flourish. And FIFA players feel the same way, right? Yeah. They can do all of this work and then they get screwed over by something that's random in the game because, and I get where we are coming from, right? Football is random sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are things that happen, like, you know, a quirky behavior. I don't know. You, you you fire the ball and you spoon it and it spins off to the left-hand side. And instead of going out of play, it hits the corner flag and comes back in. And then play's still live. Okay. And I, and then someone makes a mistake and it leads to a goal. And then everyone's like, oh, look, <laughs> that's funny. But it's not for the players. But that's just freaky luck, right? Or, or bad luck. And I think EA wanted to try and kind of replicate, not that specific one, but they wanted to kind of replicate that in the game and that's fine as far as a casual is concerned it's frustrating you know if I'm dribbling through and I'm on goal one on one with a keeper and my striker falls over instead of actually shoots even though I've pressed the same button at the same time that I've always pressed then I'm frustrated even as a casual player Yeah. right but as a professional player 
That's yeah. that's like a snooker player getting down to pot the black and then someone putting a cover over the hole <laughs> just after he shot the bloody ball. Especially if money's on the line as well. If your yes. livelihood is on the line. I, I do, it doesn't even matter. You're right. It, it does matter if there's money on the line, but, but it doesn't matter in the sense that I don't care if it's not for money. If I'm playing a professional game against someone else online, I want it to be fair. Same issue I, with, it, with Fortnite and Bloom and... I know. Yes. I know. There's been a lot of yep. a lot. There was a lot. A lot of controversy uh, during the World Cup qualifiers, especially because they went online about the effect that ping could have on certain things like taking people's walls. It was you've seen a lot of players with zero ping closest to the servers having an advantage of being able to grab any wall, which gives them a significant advantage in the fight. Which obviously wasn't the same as online at the World Cup, but even then, you still got Bloom and, like you say, in tournaments like that to have such an RNG based system is especially for the players just will be ridiculously frustrating absolutely yeah I, you know for any professional esport you want to remove as much rng as you possibly can and there will be some games that have a little bit more of it there's some in in dota but go and listen to any of the pro players whenever valve tries to introduce a bit of rng no matter how big or small pro players will complain and most of the time they're right the big thing is practice as well. If you've been practicing the game day after day after day, you want that to show, don't you, when you play? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's it, what Tech said, it, one of the qualifiers, um, he said that anyone can be good at FIFA, anyone can beat anyone, even though I've practiced loads. You know, you could you could just get someone who turns up and can beat you. And so that yeah. practice is just irrelevant. I mean, With look, at, look at professional footballers, Nathan, yeah. right? Yeah. Imagine they spend six days a week practicing in front of the goal and they're taking penalties. And they take penalties over and over again in front of the goal. And then two minutes before the match goes live, the match official says, uh, sorry, lads, we've changed the goal post. They're now only four foot wide and a foot high. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, just because, you know, we wanted it to be a bit more fun. Yeah, but we've practiced with full size goal. Like, why would you change that, right? Yeah. There'd be outcry, wouldn't there? Yeah. Imagine how yeah. absurd that would be. And that's what we're talking about to give people the context that they are the daft kind of, RNG moments that FIFA players have to put up with right now. And yeah. I don't think they should have. And then if FIFA want to say, oh, but we want to keep the game fun and fresh and interesting and a bit RNG for the casuals. Yeah, I get it. Totally get it. So have two different modes within yeah. the game. Have a pro mode, a normal mode. And your normal mode, you can introduce orange balls and change the color of the corner <laughs> flags and make the goals bigger if you really want. You can put bouncy cancels in the middle of the pitch for all I care. But the pro one, listen to the pros, listen to the feedback they give you. They're the, ultimately, they're the ones that drive the popularity of your game worldwide. You know that you make a ton of money from the ultimate team stuff. And these guys are the guys that lead that. So pay them the respect that they deserve. Work with them. And I know, you know, EA have worked with players in the past, but go back and work with them on a mode that allows them to play the game in such a way that is a legitimate esports. Because, it, you know, when it's great, honestly, it is an amazing esport. It really is. I always call yeah. it the gateway drug to esports because it's a really easy thing to get people involved in and watch because they don't really need to know much more than, look, it's just digital football, and it, the two players are controlling all the play. Wow, they're controlling all the play. Yeah, all 11 play. Wow, that's amazing. And so it's really easy to get into, and, and at its best, it is amazingly exciting, right? The World Cup a few years ago, watching the World Cup with uh, MS Dasari playing and watching with Gorilla playing, there are some amazing emotional moments in those matches, and you see how much it means to those players as well. But the skills on show are incredible. You know, I was watching just going, holy crap, yeah. how do these guys do this? Yeah. Like, I'm pretty good at FIFA, but these guys would destroy me. Watching Tex yeah, for the first time was just, 
an unbelievable experience because he he just did things at just a different pace to everyone else and he just yeah. absolutely knew what was going on but in terms of the practice element that's why I love the virtual the virtual Grand Prix so much because you can tell who's been practicing and who hasn't there's clear differentials there's clear seconds of difference in lap time between who's been practicing and who hasn't obviously you get the talent going there as well but in terms of practice it makes a real difference I'm not sure how that pans in with with your performance Paul um because you beat Nico Hulkenberg, uh, didn't you, in the bar? Well, I beat. I managed to finish ahead of Stoffel Van Dorn and Nico Hulkenberg <laughs> of the uh, Formula One driver. That must be talent. Uh, troop, that must be which talent. Was, that was that was pure talent, Nathan. Just pure, unadulterated, forty-eight years worth of Formula One knowledge, all put into one Grand Prix session. For me, it was staggering to see. I mean, I had the wouldn't say pleasure because he beat me, but I, I played uh, Nicholas Razek <laughs> uh, on weekend league. I think about three weeks ago, and I. Right. I think I was I think I was three nil up and I thought, you know what? Wow. Like, I'm, I'm holding my own here and then it was like he flicked the switch and he just <laughs> went into that eSport mode and I think he beat me seven three and I was like it was just Jeez. staggering to see that he could he could go from that. He probably was just thinking it was a casual game and then he just thought, yeah. you know, I'm gonna actually have to try and in forty five minutes it scored seven yeah. goals and I was beaten. I was just like like the the lev the level of play that he just it was like like flick the switch and he went into yeah. that eSport. I think that's, the, just, that's the right way of talking it. Yeah, Marcus, I think it is that, that switch, isn't it? They've all got, like the top players have got that switch. Like We haven't. We had a, you know, what I got out of that virtual Grand Prix was as much as I could ever get out of it. You know, I, I was like eighth at the end thinking, bloody hell, I finished in the top 10. That's amazing against other Formula 1. I'll take it, right? <laughs> um, I've not managed to crash too badly. I've managed to lose a little bit more wing on Johnny Herbert, but that was his fault. And I finished ahead of all these other people that were supposed to, you know, Ian Poulter, for instance, was supposedly really good at this incredible 25 grand rig in his garage where he's got a Ferrari LaFerrari behind him um, and I finished ahead of him um, Chris Hoy Sir Chris Hoy I finished ahead of it like that's amazing to me I'm, I'm thrilled I'll, you know uh, One Direction's Liam Payne I finished ahead of him as well so I don't care no one can take that away from me I finished 8th in an official F1 sanctioned race driving a Haas Formula 1 car I mean, if you talk about things that we didn't expect to see, if we're on that point. <laughs> Charles Leclerc in a banana costume. Uh, yes. Charles Leclerc racing against Arav in in yes. a one versus one race. Yes. Um, Charles Leclerc having to let his girlfriend in after she yeah. paid for a subscription yeah. to his channel to get the message in that she was locked out. <laughs> and I was watching Jimmy Broadbent's um, stream as well. And With then Sergio yeah, last night, did you so, see that? Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean... Yeah, it was great. You, if, if we, I mean, that is just something where... It's been yeah, brilliant no, I, to see. Absolutely, Formula One also, What a time! What a time to be alive, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. No, I, I mentioned it to my friend. Like, I someone, one of my friends mentioned to me last night. He said, "What are you up to tonight?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, just casually hanging out in a Zoom chat with Sergio Perez and Jimmy Broadbent." He's like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah, I know. It's just my life now. It's just just what I do." Some of the F1 drivers seeing their personalities come through in yeah. their streams, and then they're d- discovering Twitch and thinking, "Hang on, this is a brilliant way for me to showcase." Yeah. It's been brilliant yeah. to see. Um, no, I mean Lando Norris was doing it already. Yeah. Lando's yeah. been streaming for a few years now. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to to follow him. He, I think he follows me back on Twitter, and, and we, you know, I've been there since he was, he had very few followers, and and followed him in his previous career as well, mm-hmm. and. I got the impression that he was always a very modern Formula One driver and probably the first of those to to use things like Twitch as a a medium to promote his brand and himself, but also just to enjoy it, right? He he is properly enjoying that stuff. And then, yeah, seeing the other drivers coming on, like George Russell and Charles Leclerc coming on now and and sort of going, oh, yeah, maybe this kid isn't a nerd after all. We thought he was just this nerdy kid that did Twitch. (laughs) And actually, it turns out this is actually a really good platform and we really like doing this. And... Yeah, seeing them all having fun and enjoying themselves, I think it just gives us a completely different 
accessible side to Formula One drivers that we that I think we've spoiled by in esports, right? We we get this all the time in esports, but we don't necessarily get it from sports stars. And I think they're 15 years behind us, but they're now catching up and they're starting to realise that actually we had this right all along. This is the future, isn't it? We're going to see more and more sure. of it, hopefully, um, over the next few years. So moving on to future, I mean, I know when we spoke last year, you said we hadn't seen the the net, the big eSport that will explode and make it completely mainstream. Obviously, was in Valorant been released since then. Do you yeah. think that's the Do you think that's the one, or do you think we still haven't seen the one? I think, I mean, firstly, I think Valorant will be tremendously successful. I think it has, at its core, it's a very good game. It appeals, I think, to a lot of the 1.6 players and the Counter-Strike Global Offensive players and just probably Team FPS players in general. They've got a, you know, a great developer behind it who very much have based their previous business models on esports. So it would be no surprise to me to see Valorant become a very, very big, probably a Tier 1 esport in time uh, and probably not that far along, probably in the next 12 months. Wouldn't even surprise me to see 100 million players playing it within the next 12 months. So I think all the signs are there for it to be big. I, I, I just don't... And this is no slight on Riot or Valorant for that matter. I'm just, I'm still convinced that there's something more to come. Yeah. And maybe there always will be. Maybe that's the thing, right? Mm. Maybe maybe every year or every five years, someone asks me this question and I go, yeah, we still haven't seen it because <laughs> in five years from now, we could have something even bigger. Yeah, we've got um, next-gen consoles coming, haven't we? And exactly. We've got right. mobile games improving all the time as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there will be a killer app for all of these, right? We've, we've seen, history tells us that on every platform that we've ever had, where games have been the predominant provider of that platform, whether it be a Nintendo 64 or whether it be a PC or whether it be a SNES, there has always been one game that has almost bypassed the system and became almost ubiquitous with that particular model. So on the N64, everyone bought Goldeneye. And Goldeneye sold N64s. Yeah. Simple as that. There were some other great games. Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Absolutely. Oh. But it but it was it was Goldeneye that made the N64 a big seller. People actually went out and bought the console for that game. And there have been others over time. The Gran Turismo on the original PlayStation, I think, was the first game to kind of go, holy Moses, I'm not even a motor racing fan or a driving fan, but I'm going to buy it. That looks amazing. And so Gran Turismo became you know the flagship game for for that console, Halo on the original Xbox, same thing, right? And so there are always these flagship games that come along that kind of break the mold or have technology in them that we aspire to, to using or are just incredible games at heart. And so I think there's always one of those. For the PC, there has never really been that multiplayer eSport game yet. You know, we thought maybe it was Overwatch. We thought maybe it could be Valorant. We haven't had it yet. And that's why I'm still kind of, you know, thinking that there might be something much bigger to come. Uh, you can argue that Fortnite's successful as a game, but it's not successful as an eSport. You could say that Counter-Strike's been tremendously successful as an eSport, but probably not that successful as a game. I'm waiting for something to come along that's both. We can talk about the uncertainty about what, what's coming, but what is completely certain is that eSports is not going away anytime soon, and it's going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, over the next few years, You know, as you mentioned. Yeah, well, it's certainly not going anywhere. I think, you know, if the older generation or even, you know, other generations are looking at it thinking, oh, it's just a fad like BMX biking was, which, by the way, is still very much alive, <laughs> then think again, because it's not going anywhere from that point of view. It has already captured the hearts and minds of pretty much everyone that's 10 years plus up to 30, the largest demographic that we've got in the world. And that demographic is also very hard for traditional advertising to get into. So, you know, the advertising money is going to start coming in, or it is already starting to come in, which means that we've got... 
the money side of it is going to kind of improve over time anyway. Um, as far as the esports mm. side of it is concerned, and publishers certainly aren't going anywhere when they're yeah. making billions and millions of dollars from games. So, yeah, you're right; it's not going anywhere. I think the future generally is still very good, but I think over the next few years we'll probably see some ups and downs. I think yeah. we've we've had we've been incredibly blessed to see nine consecutive years of growth. At some point, um, and I hate the phrase "the bubble will burst" because it <laughs> makes it sound like we're in it, but we're not in a bubble. Like, don't listen to the people mm. that are telling you we're in a bubble. We're not in a bubble, but we will have some peaks and troughs coming up, no doubt about it, because we've diversified esports now. Like, we're not we're not a single entity industry anymore. We're not reliant on the same way of doing things all the time. And in actual fact, uh, we've got lots of different business ideas about how people think that that we can do it. So we've got franchising models now, for instance, which we never had before. We've also got the Valve model, which is basically get on with it yourself um, and we'll help you if we think it's worthwhile. And then we've got the other model, which is tournament organizers doing their own thing around games. And then we've got another model on top of that, which is kind of a hybrid, which is what Ubisoft are using, which is sort of franchising, but not franchising. So there's lots of different business models out of there and we haven't yet figured out which one will ultimately win out, even if one will. I don't think we're in a bubble, but I do think that we will have some ups and downs coming over the next few years and, and that we'll be fine as far as them. In the past, when we've had something that exploded or, or damn it, it's ruined the entire industry. CGS dying in 2008, you know, really hurt us as an industry um, for different reasons. So, yes, we'll have the ups and downs, the picks and troughs, but I think we'll be uh, ultimately absolutely fine about them. And, yeah, don't let people tell you we're, we're stuck in a bubble. Remember that we're just a $1 billion industry. I know it's fantastic, but the NFL is still a $30 billion industry, and that's just the NFL. That's esports as a whole is $1 billion. When League of Legends is worth $35 billion, then we can start talking about bubbles. Brilliant way to summarise it there, Paul. Thanks very much for that. And uh, your book, This Is Esports and How to Spell It, An Insider's Guide to the World of Pro Gaming, is out now. And where can people pick it up, Paul? All good bookstores. I know that sounds really weird for me to say as yeah. an esports person, but yes, genuinely speaking, all good bookstores will have this book in store, including Amazon uh, and Waterstones and even the Bloomsbury website if you want to go and search it on there and the book depository if you want to buy it internationally. So yeah, it's available pretty much everywhere you can find it and even has my dulcet tones on the audio book if you prefer to listen to me for nine straight hours, you mad people. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Um, <laughs> Thank you for having and, uh, me. It's a great book. I've I've read bits and bobs in terms of Thank chapters. You. I couldn't actually get my hands on it till a few days ago because it sold out on Amazon. So I've just I, know. I only got it a few days ago. So I read it's good the but chapters, bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd recommend it for for everyone if if you're interested in esports but you don't know a lot about it. If you're completely new or even if you're a veteran, it's it's a great read, honestly. And uh, yeah, you won't no, regret buying it. it. But uh, very, very yeah, kind of you. thanks again, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to the Level Up podcast and esports and gaming show. Make sure you've subscribed to the podcast and follow us on social media at Level Up Pod. We'll be back for another episode very soon.